This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. Very seldom today, if ever, is a preacher killed because of what he says in a sermon. Now, no doubt there may be many of us preachers who deserve something in this direction (laughs) due to the poor quality of our messages, but I have not heard lately of one being actually killed because of what he preached. Not in America, anyhow. However, I'm going to take a chance this morning. I'm going to direct your attention to part of a sermon which did cause a preacher's death. Now, the part I want to read is not the part which enraged the congregation to the point of taking the preacher's life, but rather I'm reading from another part of that sermon. If you'd like to have a copy of that whole sermon, I can get it for you, or maybe you already have it. It's found in the book of Acts, chapter 7. The preacher is named Stephen, one whom we call the first Christian martyr. Rather than my reading this entire passage just for the sake of time, let me ask that you do that. Begin with the 36th verse of Acts chapter 7 and go through verse 41. If you've read that, do you get the picture? Let me recount it for you. Stephen is here recounting the events that took place as Moses had led the people out of bondage in Egypt. He had led them in a magnificent way. Out of the hand of Pharaoh, across the Red Sea, through the wilderness... And now, when Moses had gone up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord, he stayed gone too long. The people grew restless. Where is Moses, they said. But no one seemed to know. And so they turned to Aaron. They said to him, Make for us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So what do you think Aaron did? Aaron did what they requested. He called for their golden earrings and he cast them into the fire. When Moses came down from the mountain and found that they had made a golden calf to worship, Moses was inflamed with anger. He asked the reason for this idolatrous golden calf. And Aaron replied, I just threw the gold in the fire and out came this calf. How ridiculous. One Bible paraphrase of this incident has the conversation between Moses and Aaron like this. What in the world did the people do to you, Moses demanded, to make you bring such a terrible sin upon them? Oh, don't get so upset, Aaron replied. You know these people and what a wicked bunch they are. Well, I told them, bring me your gold earrings. So they brought them to me and I threw them into the fire. And, well, this calf jumped out. We may laugh at Aaron for thinking that Moses would believe such a silly, flimsy excuse. But it is not far from that kind of thinking to those who say, the devil made me do it. Or, well, we're living in a new day now. Anything goes. Guess one excuse is about as good as any when we're guilty of manufacturing our own gods. It's been a long struggle for us to get from polytheism to monotheism, from many gods to one God. We do not have any assurance that the struggle is over yet either, not when we look at ourselves and discover that we too are guilty of creating our own gods 
as we please. Some time ago, I heard about a person who was a Protestant who attended a Jewish synagogue, who became a Roman Catholic, who also studied Buddhism and other world religions. This person reasoned that he wanted, to be, he wanted very much to go to heaven. So he wanted to be on the inside of all the religions just in case the one he had chosen happened to be wrong. There are those today who are not content with only one God. They want many gods. Because of a multiplicity of gods, one can always be found to do one's own bidding. Make us gods to go before us, the Israelites requested. But there are problems with gods that are made to order. Gods made to order can be controlled. They are not in control. They are controlled. In the wilderness wanderings, the Israelites carried with them something they called the Ark of the Covenant. This was a, a wooden chest about four and a half feet long, two feet wide, two feet deep. It was supported on two long poles by four men. The people of Israel associated this Ark of the Covenant, this wooden chest, with God himself. It represented God's holy presence. Wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, there was God, they reasoned. If they went into battle with this Ark leading the way, they could not lose, they thought. If they were traveling and the Ark of the Covenant was at the head of the line, they could not go in the wrong direction, they assumed. Now today we look back on these primitive people with a smile of pity wondering how they could actually believe such a ludicrous idea as that. We remember they did have to wander around the desert for 40 years, even though they had their own God in a box going before them. But this is the way it is with gods that are created by men. They can be controlled. They're made to do our bidding. When the Israelites in their rebellion against Moses told Aaron to make them gods to go before them, they already had decided they wanted to return to Egypt. They had no need of a god to show them the way. That decision was already made. All they wanted was a god to rubber stamp their plans, one who could go before them and be in the ceremonial place of leadership. The pathetic thing about this whole situation was that the people were not going in the right direction. Reminds us of that verse from Proverbs 16, 25. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. When you're going in the wrong direction, you'll have no trouble at all in finding someone who will tell you that you're doing the right thing. There may be even those who speak for God, they say, but whose advice is completely opposite to God's revealed will and His Word, the Bible. The people of Israel thought they were saying, we want gods to march in front of us. But what they really were saying is, we want gods made to order. Gods that will take our dictation. Aaron didn't seem to have much trouble in making this golden calf, this god for the people. According to his account, he didn't have to hammer it, shape it, form it, rework it, spend hours in making all the features just right. He said he just threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. Gods made to order are not at all hard to find. There are some people who claim to believe in God, but who in reality believe far more in themselves. This Jehovah complex, as it's been called, 
has left a trail of devastation wherever it has appeared. Oh, how many people confuse themselves with God. Years ago, when the movie version of the Ten Commandments was being filmed, there were many tryouts for the voice of God. There should have been no lack of volunteers for that role. Many people have tried hard to be the voice of God in their place, their group, their time. Those who conducted the Inquisition tried to be the voice of God. Constantine tried to force everybody to accept Christianity. He tried to be the voice of God. Some of us remember years ago when Castro first came to power in Cuba. He instructed all the teachers of little children to put their heads down on their desks and to pray to God for ice cream. When they raised their heads, nothing had happened, of course. Then they were told to put their heads down again, this time to pray to Castro for ice cream. And during this second prayer time, teachers quickly were told to distribute ice cream to each child. Castro tried to be the voice of God, but he has seen, been seen to be really the tyrant that he really was. The Bible tells us that man was made in the image of God. It does not say the physical image, but this rather means that we were created with God's characteristics like God has. We can feel, think, reason, and evaluate. In our day, we have created our own God in some ways by recreating God himself. We've often so personified God and brought him down to our level what has resulted has been a distortion of the true nature of God. For example, in our bringing God down to our own level, we have caused him to lose some of his holiness as far as our thinking is concerned. Now, certainly God is accessible, but God is also holy. God is eminent, but also he is transcendent. We've tried to make God be like us, even in his looks, I know of some people who were quite shocked many years ago when they first saw on TV the play Green Pastures. It was a fantasy of life in heaven with an all-black cast. Some people were highly incensed when God appeared on the screen portrayed by a black man. Well, God is not a black man. God is not a white man either. Nor is God yellow, red, or brown. God is as colorless as he's colorblind. I wonder if sometimes when we think that God has to be white or he has to be just like us, if we're not just as guilty of making God over in our image as were those wandering Israelites who thought they had God in a box. Martin Marty wrote some time ago in a book, The New Shape of American Religion. He says, one mark of the God of religion in general is that he's just one of us an American jolly good fellow. Popular songs which may be beamed at the masses instead of rising from them, but they do not, but they, do, they reflect the temper of the times. Those popular songs reveal this. There's a cult of the man upstairs which says that God's just a friendly neighbor who dwells in the apartment just above. Fellowship with the Lord is like an extra emotional jag that keeps a citizen happy. And sometimes God's identified as someone in the great somewhere or simply as he or the man upstairs. 
Marty refutes this casual concept of God by saying that the Christian revelation pictures God as sovereign, majestic, and holy. And to say that God is sort of a folksy dodderer sitting in a rocking chair upstairs, that is the height of blasphemy, he says. Someone somewhere may live upstairs, and he may be, as one actress said many years ago, he may be a living doll, but this is certainly not the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob, the refuge of men, the one who is holy, holy, holy. Yes, we must remember that God has come to earth in his son, Jesus Christ, but there must also be that aspect of honor, respect, and reverence of the one for whom we bring forth a royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. We cannot capture God, nor can we replace God. A professor at a university once said many years ago, as soon as we create life in a test tube, we won't need God anymore. Well, I have some fears about this. I have no fears actually about this. We still have not created life in a test tube. All we've been able to do is to bring together those two element, elementary forms of life that God has created. And whether that union occurs in a test tube or somewhere else does not erase the fact that God is the author of all life. I recall reading about another time when mankind tried to rule God out. They proposed to build a great tower to deify themselves and to make a declaration of independence from God. That effort ended in frustration, confusion, and judgment. We call it the Tower of Babel back in the book of Genesis. Mankind was made in the image of God, but we've lost our way. A clear example of the human predicament today is revealed by a bumper sticker, which I once saw on a car's rear bumper. It said, don't follow me, I'm lost. <clears throat> With God's made to order, we end up nowhere. But with our one true God as our guide, we cannot lose. Our God is a jealous God, the Bible teaches. This does not mean jealousy in the sinful sense, as we sometimes think of it. It means that God wants us to love him and no other lesser gods that we might try to create. God doesn't accept some things that people throw up to him about a watered-down, universal love of everybody when at the same time these people are tolerant of any and every heresy that comes along in the name of freedom. There are some things that we ought to be dogmatic about. When I go to my pharmacist to have a prescription filled, I want him to be dogmatic about the quality of every ingredient that goes into that medicine. I don't want a doctor who says, well, your trouble could be this or it might be that. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll try these pills and if they don't kill you, then we'll try something else. There's something very strange sounding to me when somebody says, oh, I'm not a member of any church. I just love all religions. I think the Lord has no place for such casual disciples. Sounds like God's made to order. Many of you know I happen to be a Baptist uh, historically. Uh, but God is not a Baptist. He's not a Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Catholic, Pentecostal, or any of these. God is God, and he cannot be confined to a box. God has revealed himself 
through the one way, and that is Jesus Christ, his Son. The salvation which God offers to us through Jesus, his Son, is a free gift. None of us deserve it. Living a good life, trying to obey the Ten Commandments, doing the best you can, will never bring us into a right relationship with God. One day, two people were talking about how to get to heaven. One said, I cannot understand why a person who has tried to lead a good moral life would not stand a better chance to get to heaven than a wicked person would. And the other person replied, well, suppose you and I wanted to go to a place of amusement where the price of a ticket uh, was $10. If you had $1 and I had nothing, which one of us could get in? Well, neither one of us was the obvious answer. That's right. The good moral person stands no better chance than the low sinner. But now, suppose some kind person came along and saw that we could not buy a ticket, either one of us. I had no money and you had only one dollar. And so let's say that this person gave us both a ticket which he had bought. Then who could get in? Well, both of us, of course, was the answer. And then the first explained, that's the way it is with us and Jesus. He came, he saw our spiritual dilemma, our poverty spiritually. He saw that we couldn't ever hope to achieve heaven on our own. And so he obtained eternal redemption for us by giving us a free ticket. It did cost Jesus something. It cost his life, which he willingly gave for us. This is the heart of the good news of the gospel. God is the one who has revealed himself through Jesus, our only hope. This is not a God we create, but this is the one God who created us and the one who saves us through his son. How careful we must be, however, if we are the moral persons, if we have that one dollar, we not allow pride and that fact to cause us to refuse the free ticket that Jesus has come to give us. No, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Pray with me. Oh God, forgive us, we pray, for making other gods to replace you. We wouldn't admit to that, of course. But when something else comes first place in our life, we know that becomes our God. So, Lord, forgive us, we pray, for our sin of making other gods. Help us to come back to you and give our full allegiance, our full love, our full loyalty to the only one God there is, and that's you, Lord. As you've expressed yourself and as you've saved us through the gift of your son, Jesus. This we pray in his matchless name. Amen.